All right, well, good morning, everybody. Welcome to our Sunday service. My name is Thomas, one of part of the pastoral staff here. And again, we are glad that you are here today. Shout out to all those who signed up for our welcoming lunch. If this is your first time on our Sunday and this is the first time you've heard about us having a welcoming lunch and you did not sign up, feel free to still go. We would love to have you there. Uh, again, if you've been coming for the past few weeks and you forgot to sign up, we'd love for you to just join us. So please make your way. Uh, we have people standing in the grass area that could point you to the direction of where the lunch is. So if you see a random person that's standing on the hill, just know that's where the lunch is going to be at. And it's a great way for us to meet new members and for us to meet uh, more about our church and also to understand what, how bridge groups work at our church. So if you're curious about that, go to the welcoming lunch. And if, again, this is your first time here. Our church this year, we are going through what we call a year in prayer we're 2024, we're dedicating it as a time where we're calling our church to pray. And the whole purpose is we want to create a culture in our church where we are practicing prayer both personally and corporately. And to kick that off, we've been going through a sermon series talking about different ways that we are called to pray. And so on the screen here, we have different, the different ways that we are called to pray. Um, well, it's not up there. I'll, it'll go up there in a little bit. But a couple of things that we talked about is the idea of talking prayer, asking prayer, listening prayer, unceasing prayer and corporate prayer, or if you want to do it in a more poetic way, next slide, talking to God, talking with God, listening to God, being with God, and doing this together. The first two parts, we learned how to pray through the practice and the teachings of Jesus, and we kind of focused in on what Jesus taught about how to pray. And today, what we're going to talk about is we're going to look at the book that shaped the way Jesus prayed, the book of the Psalms. And so if you have your programs, your Bibles, we're going to look at Psalm chapter 46. Psalm chapter 46. And this is coming from the ESV version for today. And here at our church, every time we read the scripture, we believe God is speaking and is alive. So we could all rise together as we read from Psalm chapter 46. So verse 1, the psalm writes, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. There is a river whose stream makes glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come, Behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots of fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. This is the reading of God's word. Let me pray for us before we begin. Lord, would you speak to us today? Spirit, we invite your, you, O oh Lord, to stir in our hearts. May we have, O oh Lord, ears to hear, and may we be able to hear what you have to say to us on this day. In your son's name, amen. You may be seated. Have you ever had a conversation with somebody where, as you sit down with them, you just could tell they do not seem interested in you at all, but they're only talking about themselves? I was reading this article from New York Times and the author, he was sitting at a coffee shop and he was just kind of like people watching and he happened to be sitting what he presumed to be the first date between this guy and this gal sitting together and he overheard their conversation 
And as he was overhearing the conversation during the entire time, he shared how he just heard this guy talking and talking and talking, talking about his job, talking about his hobbies, talking about his interests, sharing amusing facts, while this poor lady just kind of nodding her head the entire time. And the author, he writes that he felt this sudden urge to just grab this guy and scream, for the love of God, just once ask her a question. And the reason why is because, and I feel like from the laugh, some of you, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You've experienced people like that. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, you're that guy. <laughs> and the reason why that's so important, the idea of where we're not just like talking about ourselves, but we're engaging them is because that's how you connect with people. You connect with people not just by sharing about yourself, but when there is a mutual sharing going on, when you have a conversation, that's when it's the beginning of connection and intimacy. And I think this is really important to recognize because this is a problem for many of us when it comes to prayer. Many of us, when we approach prayer, we're like that guy on the first date. We talk to God, we talk to God, we share about ourselves, we share about who we are, we ask God, would you bless this day? I have this and this going on today. We ask God, please, personal request, can you do this? Can you do this for me? We share our burdens. God, this is so hard, this is so rough, that's there. And at the end of it, we go, thank you for listening, God. Amen. And we're done. In other words, our prayers, if you actually think about the way you pray, it functions a lot like this monologue where it's about you and you, you, you sharing, you sharing, you sharing, rather than like a dialogue where it's like a conversation that's happening. And that's a big problem because if you were here with us from the very beginning, what's the purpose of prayer? Prayer is not just praying for the sake of praying, but the whole purpose of prayer is so that you could connect with the living God. So you can experience intimacy with the living God. But if you are not having a conversation with him, how can you experience connection and intimacy? And this is why I think for a lot of us here, prayer, it's really stagnant in your life because you've been taught and you've been practicing this one-sided monologue your entire life. It's just you talking, you talking, and there is no intimacy in your prayer life. And so how do we grow from experiencing prayer as this monologue where it's you talking the entire time Versus this dialogue where there's this interaction that's taking place with God. And that's where we're introducing the topic of listening prayers. This might be a new category for us, but the idea of listening prayer is that prayer, it's not just us talking to God, but we are listening to what God has to say to us. Why is God putting you in these circumstances? Why is God taking you so long, taking so long to answer your questions and your, your prayers? Why did God allow this to happen in that person's life? What is God up to? What listening prayer suggests is, why don't you ask him? Why don't you ask God? What's he up to? Because when you ask God, what's happening is you are wrestling together with God through these questions and these struggles that you are have, you're having and you're creating space to listen to what God might have to say to you. So in Kierkegaard, he describes prayer like this. It's on the screen. He says, a man prayed, and at first he thought that prayer was talking. But he became more and more quiet until in the end, he realized that prayer was listening. Personally for me, this is why I struggled with prayer for a long time, and I shared this at the pulpit many times, where I thought prayer for me, it was mainly about just me talking, talking, talking. And again, great discipline to do that. That's definitely part of the, the element of prayer. But the biggest game changer for me, it was this idea of listening to God. 
does God have something to say to me in prayer? And I'm telling you, it just like shifted where prayer became this dry discipline to now this, I'm like really interested in each time I pray, like what's God going to say? And I know as you hear this topic of listening prayer, and as I'm describing that, for some of you, this might be really unfamiliar territory. It's like, wait, I thought prayer was, again, it's a monologue. It's I speak in prayer. God speaks in the Bible. Like, isn't that the dynamic that happens? And that's the way we've been taught. So it's kind of unfamiliar for us. Or for some of you, as I talk like this, it might raise questions. Like, wait, we listen to God? What are we listening to? A voice? Like, what are we saying here? Or this might even raise concerns for some of you. Because you had a lot of people in your life who played the God told me card. God told me to date you. God told me I should take this job and I would have taken it anyways, but your God just confirmed it. They do this God told me card all the time and just abuse that. And again, I totally understand the dangers of where that could lead to. So my hope today is I want to address those concerns. But I especially hope today to help us to learn how can we listen in prayer Because I think if my guess is for a lot of us here, if not most of us, this is a missing dynamic in your prayer life. And the way we're going to look at this is through the Psalms. The book of Psalms, if you're not familiar with it, it is the Bible's book of prayer. It is the Psalm. The Psalms are what teaches us how to pray. And most of the Psalms, if you read it, it's usually kind of similar to the way we pray. It's just talking to God. And most of the Psalms are written that way. But there are some Psalms that are really interesting where it's not just the person talking to God. All of a sudden, God talks back. And that includes Psalm 46. If you notice, there's a part where God starts speaking. He responds to the psalmist. And the psalm is broken down in three sections. But today, what we're going to do is we're going to focus primarily on that last section. I'll refer to the first two sections. But the last section is especially of interest today, the part where the conversation with God takes place. And so our big question is, again, how do we practice listening prayer? And I'm going to suggest three things. Number one, we need to behold. Number two, we need to be still. And number three, we need to become. To listen to God, behold, be still, become. First, behold. To listen to God, we must first behold God. Psalm 46, there are three stanzas in this psalm. They primarily focus on who God is and what he is capable of doing in times of trouble. So look at the screen here. It's broken down this way. Stanza one... I think it's up there. Stanza one. We'll go up there. Stanza one is in the first few verses that are up there. Uh, it's the first break, and you could tell the break. The brackets are there where it says "selah." All, that's how you could section it down. It's like the Hebrew word for like a pause or a break. And pretty much what stanza one is all about is the idea that God's power is over all of creation. God is ruling over all creation. And so when you see in the beginning verses, the mountains falling, the seas roaring, but God, he is our refuge and our strength. That's what the psalm is talking about. Stanza two, which is the, after that first Salah, this is all about God's power over the nations, over the nations, where the nations are roaring, kingdoms are falling, but God, he's going to silence them all. And then stanza three, it is all about this call to come And behold this God, this God who ends all disasters, who ends all wars, come and behold him. So stanza one to two, it is a description of who God is. Versus stanza three, it is a call to respond to him. And this is where all the imperatives begin. Come and behold, be still. And the reason why the Psalms is teaching us this, and it's interesting, is because this is actually how you pray. And I think for a lot of us, oh, there it is. I think it's, oh, 
There it is. <laughs> this is the first stanza, at least. Uh, for a lot of us here, you know, what's interesting about this is um, it's, it's interesting, the psalm, it's not actually, when you pay, take a step back, this isn't a narrative. This is not an epistle. This is not a prophecy. But what is a psalm? It's a prayer. And it's weird. Like, he's praying, and it's mainly about God. Like, why? We don't pray that way. And yet the majority of this prayer, it's all about God. And it's because this is how everyone prays amongst God's people. We talked about the Lord's Prayer. Before you ask any petition, what is it? All about orientation, our Father who art in heaven. When you, if some of you might be familiar with the Acts Prayer, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. It all begins with adoration. Before you confess anything, before you give thanks to anything, adore him. Or even our, uh, the prayer model that we're going through, pray. It's all about pausing reorienting. And we tend to do the opposite. We flip it. It's all about Lord, Lord, bless this, bless this. In Jesus' name, amen. Versus that's complete upside down of how we see every model of prayer throughout the Bible and throughout church history describes how to pray. See, for us, the problem is most of us, when we pray, we are focusing primarily on ourselves. We think about ourselves. We approach God about ourselves. And here's the tricky thing. We do this not just with God. We do this with everybody with everybody. There's a book called How to Know a Person by David Brooks that I've been reading. Great book. It's been a really, really helpful book. And he, David Brooks, you can take that straight off. Of David Brooks, he says, um, one of the biggest problems that people have in today's Western society is that we don't know how to really see people. Like you see them, but you don't really see them. So for example, why do you often hire the wrong person? Why do you often find yourself dating the wrong person? Why do you trust the wrong friends? You don't see the way you thought you, you, you as well you, saw, you thought you saw. You thought they were the right person. You thought they were trustworthy, but you were off. Or to flip it, why do you feel misunderstood a lot by your spouse? Why do you often not feel heard by people? Why do you feel unseen? It's because people, not just you, everybody, we do not have a good ability to really see and recognize somebody. Why is that? Brooks says, we have this natural tendency to just make it difficult for us to really look at someone and know who they are. He gives many reasons for this. He says part of his anxiety where we keep thinking, what should I say next? What should I say next? We're just thinking about the next thing we're going to say. Sometimes it's we stereotype real quickly, like you're from Sunny Hills. Enough said, I know exactly how to fill in the blanks. But the number one reason, Dave Brooks says, why we can't see each other well is because we are far too self-centered to try. We are so much about ourselves. We're all about ourselves. We talk about ourselves. And it's hard for us to really pay attention to the person before us. For example, if you talk to my son and say, I just, you could test this out. Like, try it after church. Go to my son and say, hey, Judah, guess what? I bought a Pokemon pack and I got Charizard. You know what he's going to say? He's not going to be like, oh, cool, show me. You know what he's going to say? Dude, I got a Charizard. And he's going to describe his Charizard card. Talk to a parent. Parents, talk to another parent and let them know, dude, my kids are so crazy. They are the craziest kids. Guarantee, most parents will say, you think your kids are crazy? You should see my kids. And they start talking about their kids. Or talk about that crazy time where you had your wisdom teeth pulled out and it was really painful. Guarantee, you're going to hear the person talk about their wisdom teeth, how that got pulled out. And we do this thinking we're building connection by saying, oh, this is how we relate to you. But Brooks is like, no, 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 you're not doing it because of that. You're doing it because you're shifting the tension back to you. It's about you. We can't help it. We're always about ourselves. 
And that's why we don't see people well, because we're always looking at ourselves. How do you really see somebody? How do you know if you've been really seeing someone well? And the simple answer is one word. Do you behold them? Behold. The word behold is on the screen. You could describe it as to look deeply, to be attentive to the depth of what you might not see on the surface. It's not just knowing things about them, but knowing the things that happen in their life, how that shapes the way they view life. That's what matters. Not just what happened in their life, but what those things did to shape their view of life. For example, imagine there's a person who lost their mother at a young age in a very traumatic way. One person hears about that and they go, I know this person. They lost their mother at a young age, very traumatic. Versus the second person, every Mother's Day, they send that person a message saying, hey, I know today's a really hard day. That first person sees that grieving person. That second person is beholding them. They know. They know that that day is really hard. That's the big difference. David Brooks, he expands on this. He says, quote, if you want to see, and if, you want, if I want to see you, I want to see at least a little bit how you see the world. I want to see how you construct your reality, how you make meaning I want to step at least a bit out of my point of view and in your point of view. And he goes on. The only word I can think of in the English language that captures this mental process is beholding. When you're beholding someone, you're seeing the richness of this particular human consciousness, the full symphony. And that's why the psalmist says, if you want to fully engage God in prayer, if you want to begin the conversation with God, where it's not just a monologue, but it's a conversation actually happening, first behold him. Stands the one. God is the one where even though nature is falling and falling apart, kingdoms are falling apart, stands the two. What does he tell us? Look at verse eight. Come, behold the works of the Lord. Look at him. Behold who he is. Beholding God means, do you know who God is? The God that you are actually praying to. Do you know how he thinks, how he views the world? Do you know how he views your reality? Do you know this God? When we take a moment in prayer, before you begin like randomly like sharing and going through your day, before this, if you take a moment to pause and behold God, prayer no longer becomes this inner exercise just to bring you peace and calmness and stillness during the day. It becomes an encounter with the living God because you are taking a moment to actually look at him. How can we begin to behold God in our prayers? How can we orient ourselves every single day? And this is where I can think of no better way where you got to open the scriptures. You got to turn to the scriptures. This is the best practice where most people whose prayer lives are dynamic, it's always a wedding of prayer and Bible reading together in that moment. Sometimes I hear Christians say, you know, I really struggle with Bible reading, but I really enjoy prayer. I'm really good at that. And my kind of snarky response is, I don't think you really know how to pray. Because who are you praying to? How is this not this like self-absorbed thing that's just kind of happening? When you orient yourself like this is who, this is who God is. This is how he reveals himself. And that's your orientation. You're beholding him. And watch what that does to your prayer life. That's why we're really big at our church talking about, dude, this is how we read our Bible reading plan. We want to wed those practices together where you come, behold who God is, you pray in response, and you see how your prayers really change. 
So when you begin to behold God in prayer, this is where you are now ready to listen to him. How? Second point, be still. Be still. After the psalmist says, come and behold, suddenly this is where God comes in. If you notice the quotes, all of a sudden God starts speaking and God shares how we can know him. And the reason why this happens is because, again, uh, prayer, it's not a monologue. In the psalm, there's a, God responds. There's a conversation going on. And look what it says in verse 10. Verse 10, it says, be still and know that I am God. This word know, we think of just this mental understanding of somebody. But in the Hebrew, it's actually a lot deeper than that. In the Hebrew, it's actually the word yada. It means not just intellectual knowledge, but relational intimacy. It's the same word used in Genesis where it talks about the man knowing his wife. Uh, it's a funny word, yada, but that's what it means. like to deeply know somebody, yada. I know a lot of things about LeBron James. I know that he plays for the Lakers. I know he is the highest scoring player in NBA history. I know he got a career high 20 rebounds last night to beat the Warriors. I know that he is married to his wife, Savannah. I know he has three kids, Bronny, he goes to USC. I know a lot about LeBron James, but I do not like know, know him. I don't yada him. Kind of funny word, right? The only way I can actually know, know LeBron is I got to sit with him. I got to talk to him. That's when I'll know who LeBron James is. I think for a lot of us here, this is where we're told that, hey, all the reading, you can read the Bible all you want. You can learn all the theology you want. You can go on all the mission trips you want. But if you want to know God, you have to be still. It's in stillness. And the reason why is because when you are still, you are no longer trying to be God anymore. You are letting God be God in your life. I love the way Alan Noble describes why stillness is the way we know God. He says, quote, it's not too difficult to act and say that he is God. The hard thing is to be still and know that he is God. That is the only way you can know him. A holy stillness accepts that God is sovereign and rests in his goodness and grace. It accepts that you cannot save the world yourself. And here is the problem. A lot of us here, we know God like we know LeBron James because we know a lot about God. But a lot of us, we don't know no God. We don't yada God because you're never still. All of us are so busy. We're like the busiest people all the time. You're working all the time. You have kids to entertain. You have notifications on your phone to answer. You have Netflix shows to catch up with. Every time I message members in our church, I go, hey, how are you doing these days? Without fail, they have never once said, Dude, I have so much time this season. I just know what to do with myself. That never happens. It is always without fail. I am so busy. I have so much to do. I am so tired. Everyone's busy. Everyone thinks this is something that everyone does. And it's just been normalized. Working 60 hours a week, it is normalized in our place, in our, in our country. The idea of having no Sabbath where you're just on every single day, that's just normalized. And everyone thinks it's normal. The idea of constant stimulation that's there, we just think that's super normal. It's not. It's really weird. This is a really weird culture that we live in. Years ago, there were these two American cardiologists named Meyer Friedman and Ray Roseman. They did a diagnosis where they said, dude, people in America have strangely a high rate of heart issues. Like, why are people's hearts so messed up? And they thought it was like their diet. They thought it was some type of disease. But they found out that everybody who had cardiovascular issues, they all had one thing in common, crazy schedule, crazy lives. And in fact, they gave a diagnosis. They call it hurry sickness. 
They're actually sick by being in a hurry all the time. It's not normal to be that busy. The way you're busy, it's not normal. And your body is recognizing it. Your body is kind of communicating, dude, this is not the way we were built. It's a disease that we all have that has been normalized. And there are signs that you carry this disease. You don't know what the signs are? This is what the cardiologist says. Here's sign number one. You're always in a rush. You're always in a hurry. Any delay just annoys you. So when you drive and there's a red light and there's another red light, you're like, oh, you get so annoyed that three red lights happen in a row. Or you go to a grocery market and there's like five people ahead of you, you just get really annoyed. And you have no appointment after that. So like you have somewhere to go. You're just annoyed that you're being delayed. You have the disease. There's hurry sickness. Here's another thing, another symptom. You're always multitasking. You can't just focus on one thing. You're always doing something else along with that one thing. You can't even watch a Netflix show just watching it. You have to be on your phone as you're watching it. You can't sit in a Sunday worship without looking at your phone. You have to be multitasking. You're always doing more than one thing. That's hurry sickness. Or here's the third diagnosis. You always feel behind. There's a pile of work each day, a to-do list. You're going through, you're going through. You feel so behind. Next day, new pile, always behind, always behind, always, always behind. And this sickness has been so normalized because all of us are infected. And this disease, it is literally killing people. It is literally messing up people both physically and mentally. But here's the thing. What's at stake for us, as important as your physical health is, which is really important, and as important as your mental health is, what matters most, what's at most stake for us, it's your soul, your intimacy with God. This is why people who are busy, I've never heard say, I'm so busy right now, but I feel so close to God despite that. I have yet to hear that. And yet in the story of the Bible, constantly it shows those who really know God, they always practice one thing, stillness. They make time to be still. For example, Jacob in Genesis, you're going to be reading about him really soon in our Bible reading plan. He, was always, he knew about who God was, he knew Yahweh, but the moment he actually experienced God was when he paused, when he stopped running away and he was still. Moses, he knew about the God of the Hebrews, but he didn't encounter God until he was gone 40 years in the wilderness. That's when he encountered the burning bush. Or Jesus himself, he spent 40 days in the wilderness before he began ministry to be still with God. And even throughout his ministry, he always took moments to pause and to be still. Because when we are still, that's when we not just know God, we know, know God. What does stillness look like? How do we practice this in prayer? And if you've been at our church for a while, you'll know this phrase that we talk about. It's the idea of silence and solitude. Silence and solitude is this normal rhythm of coming to God in stillness, listening to the voice of God in prayer. When we're still, we remove all the external noise. We quiet down the internal noise. And over time, these loud noises just get quieted down so you can hear the voice of God starting to speak into your life. It's really hard. Some of you who practice it, you tell me, dude, it's so hard. Even 30 seconds of stillness is so hard because you are not used to not being God. We are so prone to just keep doing something, keep doing something, keep doing something. And because of that, God feels so far. And so the framework that I like to usually put is, it works like this on the screen. Bible, the Bible is when God speaks. Prayer is when we speak. Silence and solitude is when we listen. This is the moment that we listen, where all the chatter stops, where we stop talking 
and we hear what does God have to say to us. And that begs the question, well, okay, so signs and solitudes when we listen, what are we listening for, right? Does God speak today? Is it a voice? Like what's going on? And the reason why we think that is because a lot of Christians today, this is the mentality is God, he had something to say in the past, but after the Bible was written, it's, it's silent now. And the reason why is because the Bible is the word of God. And again, people who say, well, God told me to, that leads to like cults and like these Netflix documentaries. Like we know that leads to trouble. And so because of that, we want to be careful because we don't want to over-spiritualize fleshy desires and just kind of hide and justify like these things that God said, told me so. And again, that's a big problem. People who just say, God told me so, and they do all these crazy things, big problem in the church that we need to be very careful about. God never speaks contrary to what it says in the scriptures. But here's an equally big problem, is when we think because we have the Bible, heaven is now closed, God is silent, and he has nothing to say to us except from 2,000 years ago. That is the equally big problem, because if this is true, that means when you read the Bible, it's just information. Just things that were recorded about what God once did in the past. Your prayers is just a dry discipline. No one's hearing you. No one's, you don't know if they're hearing you at all. And your faith, what ends up happening, it becomes a dead religion. Your faith is like this belief of a system, this philosophy. And while the Bible is a closed canon, we believe at this church there is no new revelation that's ever given apart from the scriptures, God still speaks today because you are filled with the spirit of God. God is alive in you. The canon is closed, but the spirit of God is alive, speaking and guiding his people, present tense. John 16, verse 13, Jesus says this to disciples, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. Present tense, it's gonna happen right now. God is guiding you through his spirit. First Corinthians chapter three, verse 16, Paul writes this, don't you yourselves know that you are God's temple and the spirit of God lives in you, not way up there, not outside there, within you. The Spirit of God is speaking through you, guiding you. But for many of us here, you function in your Christian walk as if God is not alive. Faith is a belief system. Bible is truth. Prayer is discipline. But God, he's a person. The claim of Christianity, he's a person. Your relationship with him is meant to be interactive, dynamic, because he is the living God. Keyword, living and he dwells in you. Do you live that way? And that means prayer, it's not just you have something to say to God, but he has something to say to you. If you would listen. How do we listen? Be still. Be still and know he's God. Be still so the spirit could bring truth into your heart. Be still so you can hear God. How do you actually do this? How do you listen to God? Let me just suggest two practical things. Number one, in your prayers, ask God questions. When's the last time you asked God an open-ended question? We complain to God a lot. We suggest things to God. Have you ever asked him a real question that you were curious about? Should I date this person? We ask our friends that question. We ask our parents that question. Have you ever asked God, should I date this person? Should I take this job? God, what do you think? God, why is my marriage so hard? God, why'd you take that person away from me? 
And what happens is when you pose the question to God, you are wrestling through this question together in prayer with the living God. And at the very least, you know what happens? So much clarity occurs in your question. Like, I probably shouldn't date that person. <laughs> like, that, was a, that person's actually not that good for me. Or, you know, I, I probably shouldn't take that job. So much clarity happens. You're just in dialogue with God, talking through it. That's at the very least what happens. But the very most, God might have something to say. He might have something to say. How do you know? Be still. After you ask that question, just be still. Take 30 seconds. Take two to three minutes. Take five to seven minutes, wherever you're at. What truth comes to mind? How do you sense the spirit of speaking in you during that time? Evangelicals, they call this convicted by the spirit. Baptists, they call it a word from the Lord. Our charismatic friends, they'll call it the voice of God. We're all saying the same thing. We're all saying pretty much the same thing, just using different vocabulary to describe it. And just note this, if you are not regularly reading your Bible and you say that God spoke to me, no, 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 <laughs> that's not right. Uh, you don't know who, how God even speaks. You have to familiarize yourself with the voice of God. Be familiar with what he's saying so you could sort through when's it God speaking? When is your flesh speaking? When is it the world speaking? When is it the, the evil one speaking? You must familiarize, familiarize yourself with this. Let this saturate you so you are just so familiar with God's voice so that when you actually pause and you hear, you know, this, I think this is God. I think this is God. He's not telling me anything new, but he's pressing truth into my heart. You know, for me, when I pray, I always do this thing where I pray for three burdens every day. I just have a moment in my prayer list. So I'm like, these are just three burdens that are there. And I remember one time I do this prayer walk. I look like this crazy person in my neighborhood. I'm just like talking to myself and just like walking around. And I'm like sharing my burdens to God. And I remember this one burden came up where I was thinking about our church. And I was thinking in particular about our members, especially about this year of prayer. And my big burden is like, man, like I'm really wish and hope our members, especially the tenured ones, you who've been here for like five, 10 years, I really hope they're hungry for God. Because I don't know if everyone is. I think new people, when we come, we're pretty hungry because we want to grow. But it's really easy when you've been at the same church for five, seven years, you just become stagnant and comfortable. And my big like concern and like hope is like, man, burden, like, God, are they hungry for you? Like are the tenured members and the leaders of our church, are they like hungry for you? And I don't know why, but for some reason, as I was praying that, I felt this deep guilt because I'm Asian. I just feel guilty all the time. <laughs> this deep guilt came in my mind where I'm like, dude, what was I doing the past two to three years at our church? Did I meet with enough people? Did I disciple enough people? Did I do enough Bible studies or book clubs with enough people? Why did I focus so much on finding a building? Like, do you guys, those of you who are tenured, you remember like we had that whole campaign, like, you know, we need to find a building, let's pray about it. Like, why did we focus on that? That like pondered in my brain. I thought about, dude, our mission vision statement, like, does even anyone know about it? Like, why did I focus so much on that? I thought about all the documents, our members covenant, the constitution. Like, why do we focus on that? And again, I don't regret that, but I'm just like, why, should I have like spent more time with people, discipling them and talking about who God is? And I remember I was just like really burdened and sharing that lament and prayer and I just took a moment, like, asking God, like, what, what, like, what do you think? Because that's just, I feel that burden. And I just, like, sat in silence, just kind of feeling and just kind of sitting and just being in that moment. And again, I don't know if it was a conviction from the Spirit or a word from the Lord or a voice of God. But I just sensed this, this thought came in my mind where it's like, dude, the past two to three years were really hard for you, Tom. Come to me, all who are heavy laden. Come to me. 
And that was like a flood of emotions just came out. I feel like this like trauma patient just holding it together for three years. And this is like this release just took place. Nothing new. But when I took time to listen, I feel like the spirit of God was pressing this truth that was already in my mind and just bring it to the deepest depths of my soul. It was hard. That was really hard these past two to three years. Nobody will know what you did. But come to me, all who are burdened heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Something about that just spoke to my soul. And that's what happens when you listen. You hear God all the time on a Sunday in your Bible reading, but when you listen, it goes from your head all the way to your heart. And that's when something changes in you. And that's why a lot of us here, you have read the Bible so much and you are not changing because you're reading, but you are not listening. You are praying, but you are not being still. God has a word to say to you. The spirit of God is alive in you. If you would be still and let him speak. And that leads to the last point. What happens if we keep doing this? How do we continually listen to God? Become, become. What happens when you practice stillness and begin to know him? It's really interesting. Verse 10, it doesn't say, be still and know that I'm God. And then you're going to find peace. Or, and then you're going to find rest for your souls. Like, what does it say in verse 10? Be still and know that I'm God. And then look what it says. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Last week, we talked about this. God's plans for your prayers are bigger than you. It is bigger than your life. God's going to use your prayers to renew the new heavens and new earth into this world. We don't know how he's going to do it. He just says he's going to do it. Your prayers, every single one of them, are going to be used to create the new heavens and new earth. Your prayers are meant to do more than just fix your life. And today we see something similar. God uses your prayers not just for you to have peace, not for you to just have calmness or stillness, but to what? Exalt his name. God's going to exalt his name in all the world. When we think about exalting God's name in all the world, what comes to your mind? We got to preach the gospel. We got to go on missions. We got to do all these big programs. We got to do evangelism. But in the Bible, the consistent theme is God actually, he exalts his name, not primarily by what you do, but who you become. Who he transformed you into, that exalts the name of God. Because the story of the Bible is that God is king over all of creation. And he made humankind to reflect his image in the image of God, to reflect himself to all the world. But what happens is we had totally destroyed that image. Why? We did not listen to God. We listened to the evil one. We listened to ourselves. We listened to the voices of the culture. And because of that, we are so broken, anxious people, angry people, depressed, fearful, because we are regularly listening to the lies of the evil one, the lies of the world, and the lies of the flesh. And that's why the gospel is great news. Jesus Christ came rejecting the lies of the evil one, rejecting the lies of the flesh, rejecting the lies of the culture, listening to the voice of the Father the entire time, all the way to the cross. And through his death on the cross and his life, he did what we could not do, living the life we should have lived and paying the penalty for what we could not do. 
And when we trust in Jesus' death, you are now in Christ. The spirit of God dwells in you and he is slowly forming you to become more and more like Jesus. And when you become more and more like Jesus, you are always beholding him, hearing him, listening to him. It's not just this Sunday morning. It's not just that quiet time you have, but all of life, God's voice is just so familiar to you. And when God's voice, you just recognize it all the time. You do not become a person filled with fear or anger or selfishness, but love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. The spirit of God is moving in you because you're not listening anymore to the voices of the culture that tells you true life is living for yourself. You're listening to the voice of God that true life is dying to yourself. You're not listening to the voice of the flesh saying, fulfill that strong desire you have right now in this moment. But you're listening to the voice of God, fulfill the deepest desire of your soul. You're not listening to the voice of the evil one saying, you are unworthy. How dare you stand before God? You're listening to the voice of God in Christ, you are beloved. And when you live your life that way, if that becomes like your norm, God is exalted amongst all the nations. Who lives like that? Who could face circumstances with no fear, no worry, with a strong confidence and trust in the Lord? That's when you exalt God. That's when he exalted in all the world because you are so attuned, just like Jesus was, to the spirit of God, guiding you, forming you, shaping you, all of your life. This is what listening prayer has the potential to do. So to summarize, I know some of you, this idea of listening prayer, again, a little unfamiliar, maybe even uncomfortable to practice. Let me just push back a little bit. Just in the matter of your view on prayer, and you feel free to buy into that or not, whatever we're talking about here. Do you believe God is alive? Like, is he the living God today? Does he speak to his people? Does prayer have any role in that? That would just be the challenge I offer to some of us. Or for those of you who are still hesitant, how's your prayer life? How's your prayer life? Is your theology of prayer way stronger than your practice of prayer? Let's raise them up. Strong theology and strong practice, and let's see what happens. And so for us here as a church, what's our practice for this week? Again, we have as a church a resource here on how to have a quiet time. Uh, we tell, you know, it's really daunting to say pray every day. How about just spend 10 minutes a day? That doesn't sound as daunting, right? Do you have like 10 minutes each day to be still? 10, and if you're really excited, 15 minutes to be still, to come before God. And this is where it's implemented, where we're not just reading scripture and asking, but again, next slide here. We have this acronym of pray, where from the beginning, we just pause. Be still, be silent. This is hard. It could be boring. See the boredom as an act of purification, getting rid of all the disease of hurriedness out of you. Pause for like a 30 seconds or a minute. Then reorient, read the scriptures, join our Bible reading plan. Behold who God is. Who is this God you're praying to? Then ask, ask boldly, ask with confidence, ask unashamedly the things that you actually really want. And then the last part is yield. You did a lot of talking now. Just pause, be still. What if God has something to say? This is where you listen. You may not hear anything. You may not sense anything, but some days the spirit might really surprise you. And so as we take a moment to pray, I really hope that we could really take this into our hearts where our relationship with God, it's not this monologue, but it is this dialogue 
It's not a dead faith, but it is a living, interactive conversation with the living God. So let me pray for us on our behalf.